From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a special episode of Wharton Moneyball. This is a collection of interviews that we conducted at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference this past week. The 17th Annual Sloan Sports Conference. We have been there many times over the years, and on a couple of occasions we've done these interviews, and we had the great fortune of doing a handful, maybe nine or ten, over a couple of days with a number of people, and we thought we'd share them with you as as an entire show. So we're going to give you eight, eight interviews over the next two hours, two per quarter, organized somewhat thematically. We're going to talk a little bit about sports betting, some football, some world football slash soccer, and uh, squeeze, a little ch- squeeze a little chess in before it's all over. But we had fun. We enjoyed these conversations. We hope that you find something interesting in them. Here in the first quarter, we're going to cover sports betting. Two old friends of the show. The second guest is Keith Goldner. Keith is the vice president of data science at FanDuel. FanDuel, of course, one of the industry leaders in sports betting. Keith worked for teams. He was a co-founder of an analytics startup, Numberfire, Numberfire, and more recently has been working at FanDuel for a while now, heading up their data science. Before we get to Keith, we're going to talk to Jeff Ma. Jeff is a serial entrepreneur. You may know him from Burning Down the House, 21 fame. He's worked for Twitter, for Microsoft, and he is co-host of the Bet the Process podcast with our longtime friend, Rufus Peabody. So here's Jeff Ma. Welcoming now onto the show for maybe the second time and the first time in years, Jeff Ma. Jeff, multi-time entrepreneur, formerly of many companies you've heard of, presently doing his own thing, and importantly, co-host of Bet the Process, the premier sports betting podcast out there. The number one. Number, number one. one. Number one. I was actually introduced in my last panel by the moderator or by the student as the great Jeff Ma. The great Jeff. So now I think I'm officially changing my first name to the great <laughs> and my middle name will be okay, Jeff. I'll, I'll work. I'll work on that one next okay, time. Around, Jeff. We'll do, yeah. You are, uh, you are um, a regular here. Is it possible that you've been here for all 17? I missed the second one, but I've okay. been here basically everyone since then. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. All right. And you are just off of a panel. So you moderated the poker panel? Yeah. So well, I think oftentimes people don't understand the difference between blackjack and poker, so they put me on the poker panel. No, I, <laughs> I think they wanted me to moderate it. It was, uh, a, a wonder, it was an awesome panel because we had uh, three professional poker players that were all women, uh, Maria Ho, Jennifer Shahede and Schwan Yu, and we also had Nate Silver on, and Nate's played a lot of poker himself. Um, I think what's interesting about poker is that it's becoming less interesting from an analytics standpoint because of how, quote-unquote, solved it is. There's less debate about, or there's less, like, room for debate, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because... There should be a lot of debate about whether something is right or not, but because they have these solvers and because it's been there's been a lot of effort put into them, there's like a right way to play things and a wrong way to play things. And so that makes the debate about actual strategy, I think, less interesting. Um, and so, Jeff, is it the case that human behavior has been, at least at their level, at the elite level, has been kind of human variation, has been kind of ironed out of it, that you can safely assume that it, 
you should play optimally, conditional on everyone else playing optimally, and that's a reasonably safe assumption? Yeah, I think that there is a lot of this idea that they call it game theory optimal, which is they kind of can tell you based on you know the people at the table, blah, 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 what you should play and how you should play, right? And so that becomes a little bit less interesting. Although like, I, I would love to be able to dive in enough to it to challenge some of their notions. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of that, I mean, there, maybe there's going to be some future value in kind of deviating from sort of optimal, just being, unpredict- you know, like being unpredictable. Yeah. And de- like if everybody's playing the same kind of pseudo-optimal strategy, there, maybe there is some future value in, in being kind of unpredictable. Well, so one of the things that they were saying is like if there is a you know, hand that you're supposed to play X amount of time and Y amount of time, like to randomize when you play it, they'll like look at something in the room like a clock second hand to really create randomness because like we know as humans we're unable to actually replicate randomness right that's an that's an old trick i actually learned that from my phd advisor tom cover who used to play um poker at the there was a poker room in palo alto it was legal and that's how he would fool his uh, competitors by looking at his watch and pulling the second hand, and that's how he, dis- he, he made decisions. But I'm asking, it's, I find it very hard to believe that, that even at the professional level, there's game theory optimal play. And, 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 well, and so also, they, they were actually saying that like heads up is like a useless thing to play now because that's really solved and everyone plays game theory optimal there. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, not worth playing because it's like heads up. So I think there is a fair amount of like, even among the pros, it's solved. I mean, a lot of what they were saying in this panel was like, look at who you're playing. Game selection is what they called it. So, like, basically, they just want to play against people that are bad, right? <laughs> so, game selection. I see. I like that. Um, all right, let's talk about another kind of gambling. Let's talk about sports betting. Yeah. And obviously, this is something that's really blown up as laws have changed around the U.S. in the last whatever three or four years, and continue to change. And this is a front that I think we can safely say you are at the absolute frontier on. You are a sports better. You hang with sports betters. You think about sports betting. Mm-hmm. Your partner Rufus Peabody. I went, dream about it. You dream, dream about, about it. Do you? Betting. Yeah. No. Yeah, actually, I think I do. <laughs> you when I can't do. sleep. Come it's pr- yeah. I, I, yeah. Let's be honest. I do. I dream occasionally about Texas Oklahoma football. It's absurd. I'm not proud of it, but it does happen. Anything these we, days, that's a tough thing to to really think about. It's, it has been for a while. It's sad. Dreams, not a <laughs> that's right. All right. So. Let's. Can you characterize for us how you think about the world of sports betting? And I can't think about it without hearing Rufus and his contingent complain about the way yeah. the books run their business. Well, I think the current state in the United States is kind of a race to the bottom. I mean, I think you have a bunch of people, companies that are spending like a ton of money that aren't making a ton of money where the margins are pretty bad. And the only way for them to improve their margins is to actually it's actually at the expense of the customer, right? Of the better. Because like to get better margins, they have to win more. And to win more, they have to make it a less fair game for the actual better, mm-hmm. right? So that's a big deal, first mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. And so the, the other thing is because these... Real, real quickly, before you go there, Jeff, can you say how they, what that looks like? Like making it... Well, so typical bet, you bet $100 and you're risking 110 to win 100 they can change that now where you're risking 115 to win 100, and many have done that in those cases. They can obfuscate things by creating uh, exotic-type bets that sound great, where you know we all know that like the, the sort of long shots and horse racing, 
will teach us that people don't know the difference between bad odds and really bad odds. <laughs> they can make the odds really bad right. and make them, you know, people think they're only bad. And so there's just a lot of ways that they can do it, and they are doing it, and they're going to have to do it because they're publicly traded companies that need to produce profit and need to start actually making money at some point. And again, with these highly regulated areas that are regulated by 51, 50 different states and potentially 51 different jurors, like it's just a hard thing to believe that they're going to have a lot of opportunity for innovation. Okay. What about this thing that people complain about where you get limited out or cut off altogether if they think you're sharp or they get the slightest idea that you're sharp? Well, I mean, that's both. It's true, right? I mean, I think that the most of these uh, sports books are not interested in giving, um, you know, betting with sharp betters or professional betters. And so, in a case when they find out you are, they will limit you or they will tell you, you you can't play there or whatever. And it's, I think, both penny wise and pound foolish, right? I mean, it's both penny foolish and pound foolish in this case, right? Because I think ultimately, you know, to nurture the business, we need more handle, right, ultimately, and understanding how to handle that handle, right? If a subset of, the, of, a subset of this market, you're going to tell they can't bet, and that's the subset that's probably going to be betting the most, right? Yeah. You're you're really making a mistake, right? Like yeah. in what business, other business would people be like, no, we don't want your business necessarily. Now, they definitely have to figure out ways to handle it and mitigate their own risk, but that's their job, right? Mm-hmm. Their job. And so um, by kicking these guys out, I do think it's, it's they're being bad stewards of the industry. One thing that baffles me is that the the probab- the implied probabilities are greater than one. That's a pretty big advantage. Isn't that enough to make money? You would think, right? But I think the problem is that they're not particularly... A lot of these are not particularly good at their jobs. And they don't have... I think the other problem is that like there's a lot of... Um, they don't know enough about customers to understand how to like balance their action properly. And, you know, the, again, like these companies are run right now by by people that aren't necessarily from the betting world per se or you know and and there's just a lot of it's a lot of weirdness happening in the US and in the sports betting right now. Do you see a way out of it? Are you optimistic about where it's going? Uh short term very pessimistic, long term uh, the optimism comes from believing that Americans like figure a lot of shit out and we know how to innovate, and right? Mar- markets work. Yeah, and eventually I think for me, like, I think there's going to be a lot of carnage. A lot of these companies are not going to make it over the next five to ten years. And with that, I think there'll end up being a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. for new players to come in. Right now, mm-hmm. like, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of innovation happening on the sports betting side. And it's because so much of their technical resources are being put towards opening new markets. Anytime a new state opens, they have to, it, most of the time, produce a whole new product because there's different regulations and different things that they need to do. Okay. And so that's taking up a lot of their technical resources. Once, once that gets to some like form of stability or homeostasis or whatnot, then I think they'll have an ability to innovate. But I also think some of the companies will, will be gone by then. And I think new companies can come in and try to innovate. Okay. When you say innovation in sports betting, what, like, give us an example or, or direction. Like the you experience, might... the products, the experience, like what is it like to actually like follow a bet? What is it like? What's the dopamine hit that you get from watching it? Like, mm-hmm. um, the, um, uh, the that experience and then the products like there there has to be more interesting types of bets than what are offered right now like the traditional you know minus 110 on the Chiefs minus 3 
It's fine, but that's fine to a subset of the world, right? That's not fine to the majority of the world, right? Okay. The majority of the world does not understand a point spread. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you have to make things more accessible. Mm-hmm. I can't give you all my secret ideas because one do day they, I may try to take advantage of the carnage. Do they understand odds? I mean, what's the alternative to spreads? Uh, very simple events, predicting very, like, you know, like who's going to score the first touchdown or how many, like, there's a, there's a company called Pro League Network that just did a big thing on the World Putting Championship. And one of the bets that they were allowed was how many hole-in-ones will happen on this hole. It's very simple. How many hole-in-ones? Right. right? And, but the people, you're just taking advantage of the fact that people really don't know how to price that. They have no real clue that that probability is either one in a hundred or one in a thousand. And they'll just take whatever's offered and think of it as fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, well, I think in some of these instances, like, so in the case of, like, the World Putting Championship, right, it's just like this thing that hopefully people are just watching and it's entertainment. And it's like, like, just think about when, when the Powerball gets up to like, you know, 500 million people play, right? Like I've played, I don't know if you guys, you guys are smart, but I've played in those and led the, and think about if there used to be shows where they would show the drawing of these numbers and there's nothing exciting about that. But, you know, like imagine you were able to do that with sports where you created better lottery type payouts for these you know, simple type events that would happen. How do you think about the utility of the sports betting industry to the population at large? Like you're just talking, you're talking about it very much as entertainment. It's like Kantian utility or yeah, what are well, we talking yeah, about? Sure. That, and it's, you know, a lot of people worry about with the spread of gambling, there'll be more problems and people who shouldn't gamble are losing money. It, I don't know how we observe this or not observe this, but it, to the, anecdotally it, it feels like Actually, there's just a lot of people participating in a pretty harmless kind of entertainment-oriented way than there used to be. Like, there's just more people betting a little bit because it's fun with their buddies or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that'd be great if that's all. Right. But then we have to somehow keep track of the, more, the downside as well. How do you think about it? What, how would you characterize the effects? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, uh, the net of it, right, is if at least if, it's more acceptable to talk about sports betting or to do sports betting then there's less of a chance of someone just kind of like doing it in a in a back room and like you know getting a problem like having more opportunity to talk about it's like mental health right like one of the biggest things we need to do for mental health is just make it very easy for people to talk about De- mental de-stigmatize, health right yes. and destigmatize it right mm-hmm. so destigmatizing sports betting will allow for people to maybe like have an opportunity i i think the the sports books need to do a good job at creating like sports betting should be fun mm-hmm. it should be something that we're engaged with that like makes watching a game more fun mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. shouldn't be something that like makes me angry at the end of a game but obviously <laughs> if i lose maybe i am uh-huh. so um my hope I, I i don't think this question matters to some degree because the cat's already out of the bag it really becomes like how do we actually make the experience less like you know, placing a book with your, placing a bet with your like local bookie to actually like playing Powerball. Right. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thanks for those thoughts, Jeff. Thanks for stepping away from the conference. Yeah. And giving us a little thanks time. for having me. The great Jeff Ma. We're here at the 17th annual Sloan Sports Analytics Conference here in March, 2023. We are taking in the sights and sounds, talking to folks, new friends, old friends, getting up to speed on various sports and various analytics. Welcoming now onto the show, Keith Goldner. Somehow we haven't talked to Keith in our nine years of this show. We're delighted to finally get him on. Keith is vice president of data science at FanDuel. 
He was also a co-founder of Numberfire. They've been acquired by FanDuel a number of years ago, but he he's also worked for teams. He's had an interesting, broad career in the world of sports analytics. Keith, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Cade. Thanks for making time for us. Um, how, how are you feeling about the conference so far? It's been great. I mean, generally when you get so many smart people from the industry in one place, uh, it's it's a tough event to miss because of that. So uh, enjoy well, it every you're year. You're here a lot. I, I think I've seen you. I mean, I've seen you for years off and on. You seem to make it a regular thing. What's a concrete example of something you're enjoying or getting value out of this year? Uh, I think the biggest thing is just the people that are here. Um, yeah, the content in general, there's, there's good stuff. There's always great research papers, some cutting-edge things. But in general, it's just having both people in the industry um, and people who are trying to get into the industry, smart people. When you get a bunch of smart people together in one place, you get good outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about your work at FanDuel. And let's start with the stupidest, simplest question I can ask. Tell us again the difference between FanDuel and DraftKings. How do you how do you differentiate yourself from your chief competitor on any dimension? Sure. Um, uh, the biggest differentiator right now is market share, um, where I've, we're currently doing pretty well. But in general, I would say the, the difference in product is it's not dramatic. I'm not going to come here and tell you that we offer crazy stuff that DraftKings doesn't offer or any of the other competitors. Um, the biggest difference is that we have a really, really talented risk and training team. We do a lot of the stuff in-house that um, the other books don't do. Um, and as a result, we can offer new innovative markets, be a lot more flexible, a lot more creative. Um, and What's get- an example of innovation or creativity in this space? So uh, we offer a lot of like we call f- in-play flare markets where you could bet on uh, how many dunks are there going to be in the next three minutes, um, that sort of stuff. And that's with the, the very talented data scientists and uh, traders and, and uh, risk people that we have on our teams, we can put that together pretty quickly and get customers interesting stuff that they want to be engaging with. When you say pretty quickly, from concept to someone actually buying those contracts, what's the length of time? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get too into that, um, but we are able to get stuff up very quickly. If somebody has a really good idea um, that we want to get into production, there can be technical challenges, but we can theoretically have something up tomorrow. Yeah, is it, yeah, because I assume the main bottleneck for some innovative new thing essentially to bet on is the risk valuation on your end to kind of make sure that you're not throwing something out there that is super misvalued or anything like that. Is that kind of, you know, basically the reason you're able to kind of offer a lot of these innovative products other than just creativity and excitement it, it is because you're, you have this team essentially monitoring these things in real time and evaluating when something's really misappraised. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's definitely a huge part of what we do, especially doing it internally, is that we have risk teams and subject matter experts that um, it goes to those levels. But I wouldn't say that's the biggest bottleneck in launching stuff. For If you talk to any of these sports books, any of these platforms, the biggest bottleneck is always going to be, can you get the, the technology, the technology stack, especially with latency when you're doing live stuff? Can you get the feeds integrated? Uh, you have to result bets in terms of getting people their money afterwards. Can you do that all effectively from a technology standpoint is the, the biggest challenge. Keith, your career raises some interesting questions about um, different experiences in sports analytics. One of the neat things about this conference is that you get people working in sports analytics in a lot of different capacities from a lot of different perspectives. And you are somebody who's had multiple perspectives. Two dimensions I'm thinking about in particular. One is you have been an analyst for a team and now you're working on the other side, more on the customer side or fan side of things, that, that comparison. But then also, you've been a co-founder, an entrepreneur in this space, and now you're a head staffer for a large organization. 
very different. So how do you think about those differences? And how it, I mean, there are virtues, of course, to all of them. But yep. how do you think about the trade-offs and the pluses and minuses of those? Yep. So let me talk first to the kind of working for a team versus working uh, in industry. So um, there are pros and cons to both. And it's all about what your values are and your lifestyle is and what's most important to you. Working for a team, the two main pros to it are you're working to win a championship. You're with a group of people. It's competitive. You all have the same exact goal. That's you want to win a championship, and you, you can't really replace that. That's super exciting. You're going to games. At FanDuel, my goal is to build interesting things and eventually make money, um, which is a lot of fun, but it's not the same as the drive to win a championship. So that's the first pro of working for a team. The second is um, it's cool. Like No matter what anyone tells you, it is a status thing to say that you work for one of the 30, 32 professional teams in yeah. one of the four major leagues. It's a very cool thing. You get the gear. The cons <laughs> are the pros of working in industry, which is one, the compensation is going to be better. Teams know that everybody wants the jobs, and they unfortunately do not pay very well for the jobs. And the bigger one to me, and one of the reasons that uh, I'm at FanDuel, is the work-life balance. Um, I, I have two little kids. Uh, it's much more important to me that I'm enjoying my life on a regular basis than grinding 100 hours a week uh, for a team, even if it is to win a championship. But some people, again, you might not have the dependence. You might not have. It might be more interesting to be uh, going for that championship, trying to win that ring. Um, so it, it's all up to the individual and what they value. Let me ask you one other aspect. What about the teamness of it? It's interesting to work. It's it's different experience to work with a group of people who are that committed to a particular thing that's not for everybody but for some people that's important that's kind of a given in a sports team i can imagine that in some organizations it actually feels a little bit that way too if, if there is a true mission and a felt mission and a, and a joint mission but can you speak to a little a little bit of that of what you've seen either in number fire maybe especially as a startup and now with FanDuel, how much of that teamness mission still exists yeah, it's much easier with a professional team because, like you said, it's built in. But no matter where you're working, like culture is a huge part of it. And part of that is having something to drive toward. I'm very fortunate that it's FanDuel as a whole, and in particular on our team and the risk and trading team, like everyone is aligned on what you're trying to do. We want to be the best in the world at risk and trading, at sports modeling, and that drives people, that motivates people. In general, what I have found is that the happier the people that you're working with are, the better work they're going to produce. And that's, again, what, to me, like the work-life balance is such mm -hmm. a big part of it. Mm -hmm. It's fun working for a team, but you can... I've seen a lot of people burn out from doing it. And if someone's burning out, they're not going to give you the best work they can. Well, speaking of burnout, we see a lot of entrepreneurs in these halls and people and would-be entrepreneurs, people with new ideas as an entrepreneur, a very successful one. What's your advice to these guys? You got to keep grinding. Yeah, it's it's tough. The burnout's a real thing, but uh, the effort that you put in, the connections that you make, those are those are the things that pay out in the long term. And this same advice I give to entrepreneurs is what I give to students who are trying to get into the industry. Um, a lot of it is luck. A huge I attribute a huge portion of where I am to luck, but you can also create luck by giving yourself more opportunities. When I was trying to get into sports analytics, I sent out emails to thirty teams and was looking for an internship, and I got maybe nine no's back and one maybe and that maybe turned into uh, like my first internship and so creating more opportunities yourself you can't be afraid to put yourself out there because generally laws of probability the more opportunities you give yourself the more opportunities you have for one potentially rare occurrence to happen exactly just because so much of our life isn't chance driven doesn't mean that we should just throw up our hands it means you adapt your strategy exactly. accordingly and more exactly. chances is the most obvious thing to do there what about what you're seeing at the conference this year, whether it's a panel or a conversation or a paper or a poster? 
What technically, analytically, is interesting to you right now? Either personally or for your job. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's tough. We're in, we're in an interesting time in, in the sports betting industry in general. Everyone's trying to be innovative, but at the same time, you have new states coming on every day. Massachusetts is, is coming on in a week, and that, in particular, in the short term, is so much more important to what we're trying to do than uh, necessarily planning for the long term and the innovative space. My my team's job, though, is to plan for the long term. It's to build models internally at FanDuel to essentially price up whatever it is that somebody wants to to, to bet on, how they engage with sports. And so um, right now the trends, and you, we've heard it a lot in, in some of the betting panels, is for a lot of the in-game betting. Um, what cool in-game things can we offer that people really want to bet on the next play, the next dunk? And there's huge challenges with that around latency when you're watching, when you're streaming a game and it's two minutes behind and you're trying to bet on the next play like it happened two minutes ago. Um, so how do we how do we solve for those t- types of challenges? Can you say anything about what you think we might be betting on three, four years from now that we're not even much thinking about right now? I mean, the general concept is anything that you can think of that we can quantify uh, the probabilities for and come up with a probability distribution we want people to be able to bet on. We we're trying to find what people are interested in. One of the, the biggest advances in sports betting has been same-game parlay, where you can bet on multiple correlated outcomes within the same game. And uh, so you can bet on LeBron to go over 20 points and the Lakers to win and the total to go over 200 points, um, which obviously if LeBron does well, the Lakers are more likely to win. It's been so engaging, and I don't think people realized how engaging it had been because when people watch sports, it's narrative-driven. They th- they're thinking, hey, LeBron's going to go off tonight. Lakers are going to win. Let me put the three or four bets that are going to confirm that narrative into it, and it makes watching the event much more exciting. Yeah, and I guess I'll just sort of finish with sort of like uh, kind of the parallel question, which is, you know, obviously so much of your time right now is building kind of the infrastructure for sports betting at a national level. Are there parts of kind of like either customer behavior or, or, or just the industry that kind of you're, you're looking forward to like five years from now when you, that, that's no longer an issue or like, you know, that, is there something that really irritates you about the kind of field in its sort of nascent state right now? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's a really exciting to be like industry to be a part of. Um, there's going to be challenges, and there's things that you have, like responsible gaming stuff is super important. That has to be at the forefront of your mind with everything that you're building. And um, compliance is a huge issue. It's state by state. Every state is different. So those are the types of things that we're always thinking about first before building the cool new stuff. Um, but I, I mean, the industry as a whole is a rocket ship right now. There's really cool stuff coming out of it, and uh, I think it's an exciting time to be part of it. Well, Keith, thanks for sharing us sharing with us what's going on in that industry right now. Always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for making time in the middle of a busy conference. Wish you the best with the work you're doing at FanDuel. Yep, thanks so much for having me. Keith Goldner, Vice President of Data Science at FanDuel, previously co-founder of Number Fire, and before that, team analyst. Um, fun, interesting career from Keith. We are here at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. All right. Those are our two interviews for Q1. We have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to a special episode of Wharton Moneyball. In the second quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball, recorded at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, we're going to talk to two of our colleagues in the football space, American football, that is Jack Jones co-founder of Sumer Sports. You've heard heard a lot of conversation recently about Sumer Sports. Jack is one of the co-founders. We're going to 
catch up with them, what those guys are about. Before that, Steve Palazzolo. Steve is head of football at PFF and has been on the show multiple times. In fact, we've been with him live before, and we were delighted to get another chance to sit down with Steve in person from the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. All right. Next, we have Steve Palazzolo. Steve has been on our show multiple times, including in person. We, we met him for the first time, I believe, in Houston, or yep. whatever the Houston Super Bowl was. We had an in-person radio row show there, and then he's been on our show since then. Steve is at PFF. I believe he's head of product yes, at sir. PFF. Is that right? And we are delighted to get a little chance to visit with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. This is your third time with us, but your first time at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Is that right? It is. Yeah, I grew up right up the road in North Reading, Massachusetts, but first time at the actual conference, and uh, it's been great so far. I'm enjoying it. What, what? How does it meet or not meet your expectations? It has met it because um, I've, I'm blessed to be a speaker this year, so I got to hang out in the green room and just talk shop with Bill James and Daryl Morey for a little bit. So that was... Beautiful, a go. great start for me. You, yeah, that start. That's all you need. You, yeah. can, you can go home now, and you will have had a satisfying conference. That's fantastic. Yeah, the green room. You know, once you do the green room, every other uh, time here is just a little bit not the same thing. <laughs> that's great. No so, offense to everyone that's not in the exactly. green room right now. We but. were having a perfectly fine time, Steve, until you just told us <laughs> that the real party is behind that wall. Um, let's talk about your session. You are in a session on Saturday afternoon. And it is on building the rosters in football, right? Is, do I have that panel right? That's, That's right, yeah. And Seth Walters moderating that. So as you go into that panel, what do you think? We were, we were chatting with Seth, Seth a little bit last night. He was trying to get some questions from the group yeah. for the panel. What do you think some of the interesting questions are, or maybe the most interesting question, in roster construction in football? Yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many different ways that teams go about things, right? We just saw the Rams win a Super Bowl being super aggressive, and Kevin Demoff's going to be on the panel. We've seen teams build through the draft. You know, there's so many different theories and ways to do it, and I think it's just having those conversations. Where do you allocate your resources? How do you value positions? Um, there's still a lot of people around the league that maybe don't even think about positional value, the value of a running back versus a tackle versus a safety, and just – Getting those conversations going, where do you get those players? Where are the edges in finding those players, and how much are they all worth? Steve, is there, do we have an answer? Is this question answerable right now? How close are we to actually having an answer to this question, even possible? So I think, you know, uh, Dr. Eric Eager, formerly of PFF, we always say rest, I always say rest in peace as a joke. He's, he's no longer of PFF when we mention him on our podcast, but... Um, you know, he's created a war metric and I think, you know, other, other people have tried that within organizations. And so I I think we're close. I think there are ways to value positions, what they bring to the table from a point standpoint, from a win standpoint. And then it's just about tying that to money and draft capital and where you actually find those. So Steve, one of the things you mentioned is that there's all kinds of different ways to build a winning team. Perhaps if we turned it around and asked the question, are there things not to do? Sometimes that's a much easier problem. Can you think of things that teams have done that are just clearly just not going to work and they should not try them? Maybe that's whole strategies or specific attempts. Yeah, that's a great. So I think the I think overvaluing the lesser positions is definitely one of those, right? So if you if you go through three straight drafts and you have a guard and a running back and a linebacker for three straight drafts, chances are you're going to fall behind, right? Or um, overemphasizing certain position groups versus others. I definitely think there's ways to do that. Um, and then it's just really difficult because in the NFL, we know how much the quarterback is the most important thing. So one of the questions I want to bring up on the panel is, should the NFL treat quarterbacks the way NBA treats superstars? 
which is, you know, the NBA is trying to find one at all costs. It's either through the draft. You do everything you can to get a high draft pick to get a superstar, or you create an environment where a superstar wants to come to you. Should NFL teams literally do everything they can to find a top five to eight quarterback, whatever that range is, that becomes that, you know, it's not a guarantee, but it's a cheat code compared to everything else. Should you draft three quarterbacks in a draft? Should you literally draft one every single first round? So it's not that they're doing wrong, but it's something they could think about doing going forward. So, for example, do the Bears use the first pick on a quarterback? Perfect. I mean, should they? I mean, we'll, we'll bring that up tomorrow. Should they do that? Um, I've been of the mind, yeah, you draft a Bryce Young, see what you can get for a Justin Fields, or you keep Justin Fields there. And the NFL is just, um, I want to get Thomas's take and Kevin's take because they're in the build, well, they've been in the build, Jackie, they're in the building, they know the human element of it, and that's usually the thing that gets pushed back on, the human element of there's two quarterbacks. You can't have two quarterbacks. They've said that for years, but can you actually have two quarterbacks and make it work? Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess the other th- question I kind of have when you think about roster construction is the extent to which, you know, teams are very kind of specific to their own sort of schemes and kind of design like, is a lot of the hidden talent out there in football still not necessarily finding, you know, you're, you're, you have a better appraisal of the best wide receiver out there, but maybe you actually can actually detect a particular wide receiver style or, or you know, a running back style that fits your offense better than other teams, and so therefore they're, they're, they're more valuable to you than another team and therefore more gettable. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I'm, I'm torn on that because I do think teams – both over and undervalue that. I think a lot of times they think so much about scheme and what their coaches want, and their coach is gone in a year, right? And they and, and they they forget about good players. At the same time, I, you know, the NBA has done a lot of good stuff studying how do these five players interact? You know, what are their roles? How do they? How do the pieces fit in the puzzle? So I think there's something to the puzzle in fitting players into a scheme. I also think you might be missing on good players. You know, at some point, people passed up Aaron Donald because they ran a three-four. Right, that, and that was seven or eight years ago, whatever it was. But they passed up a really good player because he didn't fit the scheme. We're mostly beyond that with Aaron Donald, but there's still a little bit of that in buildings where maybe you're overrating exactly what you do when it might change year to year. I mean, that in of itself is an interesting question, right? How, to what extent do you have some coherent scheme and find players to fit that scheme, or do you, to what extent do you um, adapt to your players? People talk about both being a virtue, but we're rather inconsistent on that, right? And yeah. At both the pro level and the college level. Yeah, I think at the NFL, I mean, so college is so wide with the uh, breadth of schemes that I think it probably makes more sense, right? You have teams that are literally running four wide receivers out there all the time, so it's different, right? The NFL probably has three or four systems that are completely different, that are unique, right? That de- two or three defenses that always play or play 50% man coverage, which is an extreme at the NFL level. Two or three offenses, the Ravens, that are going to run the ball so much, or Kyle Shanahan scheme that's just going to do things differently. But most of the NFL offenses are pretty homogenized, right? I mean, defenses too. So that's where I think in those buildings, they might be overrating it, whereas a team like the Ravens that know they're an extreme, they're an outlier, might be able to draft differently because it fits their system. Got it. All right, so you are one of the people here at Sloan who is splitting time this week between Indianapolis and Boston. It's this unfortunate thing that usually happens, that the Sloan Conference is the same week as the Combine. You're just back from Indy? I am. Some of these yeah. teams you just mentioned, or you just sat down, as far as I know, with every team. I think this is something PFF tries to do at every Indianapolis 
gathering. So what, what, what was the takeaway or two from your time over there this year? I feel like I repeat myself a lot every year with this, but it's 32 different teams, 32 different business models and way of doing things, which is always fascinating. It's always a good reminder that everybody's trying to do it just a little bit differently. The other part is um, college player tracking. Um, computer vision work is just top of mind. It was last year at this time. And... Um, so let me make sure I understand what you mean. Yeah. That's that, so. Computer vision is taking video and converting it into code. So it's a it's a form of knowing where everybody is at all times, yeah. in, 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 via a different technology. But it's bringing us the tracking data at the college level that we've had now for a few years at the pro level. Is that what it, you're exactly? And um, it's just everybody wants it. If you don't have it, you really want it. If they the teams that do have that data, and it's not every team yet, the teams that do have that data are are exploring it and they're trying to replicate speeds and athleticism and they're trying to figure out what's happening in the game the same way we've been able to do at the NFL level. Why do some teams have it and other teams not? Is this because they're paying for it from a vendor who's yeah. who's taking it off a of video? Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, so it's about did they pay the vendors yet, basically. And um, and a lot of teams are, are differently equipped to be able to do something with the data. Some teams have a, you know full teams of people ready to do something with the data. Some teams just aren't ready to actually you know put it to use yet. It's interesting because we at Penn have been doing all that with vision without computers. They just they sit down and they watch the games and they collect the data. And then finally they came to us and they said, can you automate that? And I said, no, but I have a potential opportunity for you. <laughs> and they're like, PFF does this and stop trying to actually try to do this by hand. It's too time consuming and difficult and it's, the data source is too small. Our best salesman right here. It's awesome. To what extent is the video kind of capture sort of data as good as sort of the you know chip tracking or whatever I think that's mostly out there in the NFL right now is it is it is it basically at the at the same level of resolution it's close it's close i know our some of our data science guys wish that they had that was a little bit better but we've we've overlaid it a little bit with ngs it's close um, what's interesting is if you get slightly different speed scores and stuff like that like we've been trained that 22 miles an hour is fast because we've heard that from ngs but is that is that the accurate number is it actually you know it is interesting because you'll get somewhat different numbers, I think, from college. Yeah, and it, I mean, how much is it based on sort of like, again, having a very complex video system that's capturing like kind of like, you know, the all 22? Or could, is there hope for in the future we're going to actually be able to go back to historical games for which we only have essentially the, you know, usual kind of historical captures? Are we actually going to be able to kind of retrofit like tr- player tracking on, on histor- like, uh, you know, back to the 80s and 90s? I think you can for... It, maybe not the 80s and 90s, but at least of the last 10 years. I think that's the advantage of, of doing it this way. You, you are able to go backwards, use the coach's film to do it. Um, each camera is different, and it does, you know, there's margin for error in there based off camera and angles and all that stuff, but I think we can go backwards, yeah. Steve, you were PFF employee number six or some absurd that's right. thing. So yeah. you've been there, you've been at PFF from the beginning, which means you've ridden the wave of analytics in the last what has it been, not quite 10 years? 11 years. 11 now, years, yeah. okay. Yeah. And you've been going to Indy for much of that time. How would you characterize the league in terms of their, we tend to say things like sophistication, which is judgy, but how would you characterize the league's interest and ability to process the kind of things that you're doing and selling? It's it's much better than it was. I mean, when we, when we were first selling at Indy, we had this rich data set, and we would give it to them, and they'd say, all right, yeah, we'll see what we can do with it. I mean, they knew they needed it. They knew they were going to use it for efficiency stuff and their coaches and get it into their video system. But we had to build our own platform 
called PFF Ultimate so that they could use it and just use it more effectively. And now, years later, there's far more people saying, give us more raw data. Give us more data. Give us more data because they have people that can do the work. So it is just a more, it's just a better rounded front office and coaching staff across the league. You may or may not want to answer this very precisely, but like, like out of the 32 teams, how many want more like raw data, the simpler product, as opposed to access to a platform? I'd say it's, it's probably about two-thirds. I think there's, I mean, every team says it, but I'd say about two-thirds of the team teams really want more raw data. They really have the infrastructure to do something with it, um, and that's growing every single year for okay. sure. Okay, terrific. Steve, thanks, man. It's, it's a busy place here, lots of people to talk to. Appreciate you stepping aside and giving us a few minutes. Of course. Thanks for having me. Steve Palazzolo, head of product at PFF, longtime friend of Wharton Moneyball. We are here at the Sloan Sports Conference. We are delighted to welcome onto the show for the very first time Jack Jones. Jack is co-founder of Sumer Sports. You guys have heard us talk about Sumer Sports. We've had guests from Sumer on, and now we get the privilege of talking to one of the co-founders. Good afternoon to you, Jack. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. No, thanks, Kate. It's an honor to be on. Well, we're very pleased to be with you. We are sitting here off to the side of the, of the Sports Analytics Conference, of course, how are you finding the conference so far? And if, have you been here before? Is this your first time out? I know you were you were a speaker this morning. Yes, yeah, I've previously been here before. I went the past two years. It's an unreal conference. You know, twenty five people, twenty five hundred people. I think this year mm. are attending. Numbers growing each year. So, uh, heard a lot of cool uh, research papers walking by the hall, and uh, yeah, was was lucky enough to be able to present this morning. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience and a good crowd. You were, to some extent, introducing this world to Sumer Sports and some of their products. Can you give us the recap of that? Like, what should we know? What should our audience know about Sumer? Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing to know is that there's really one number that we're really honing in on and thinking that NFL decision makers should be really focusing on, and that's roster value. Um, there's a lot of great work out there that's being done on player valuation, both uh, you know internal within clubs and external with third-party vendors, but no one is really making a calculated effort to calculate the, uh, the value of a whole roster, and that's what we're really trying to focus on. Um, a snippet in my speech, I said, you know, Peter Jucker, who's the uh, one of the founders of modern management said if you can't measure it then how can you manage it for us it's how can you manage an nfl roster if you can't put an objective numerical value to it and that's what we're trying to do and then optimize around club ip to create multiple scenarios with these values to choose the highest one for a club okay so hold on you just went let's take that last piece in a second but first so in baseball i think they do a pretty good job of putting numbers on values. In fact, yeah. they'll put numbers on entire farm systems. Yeah. So football is harder, one, because we're not yet there valuing any given player, but also because we believe that there are these interactions between players that don't exist in something a little more linear like baseball. Exactly. So yeah. what do you think the key, as you start doing this, this is like yeah. in some sense the holy grail and yeah. it's going to be a while before anybody has it. Yeah. But what do you think the key questions are? that will determine the value of a roster beyond just getting you know player valuation right or position valuation yeah. right. Yeah, so I think the two big ones I think about are availability as well as the financials. Um, so availability is who's going to be available uh, in future seasons. That's what we're also focused on because when you're trying to evaluate a roster, you can't just look at the current season, right? You have to take into account future seasons out to a certain projection horizon. Are you trying to win a Super Bowl now or are you in a rebuilding phase? These questions determine how clubs really 
build their rosters. So that that future uh, factor is really huge, and a lot of that has to do with who's going to be available and what are going to be you know the market prices around these players. So that's something that we're really interested in and forecasting and trying to uh, comprehend in uh, trying to um, incorporate into our system. And then the second aspect is just the financials and being able to properly understand the salary cap implications of each of these hypothetical contract structures, which is a beast in itself and it's something that we're working very hard on, but still have not fully figured out. Okay. And of course, those two things are connected because the contract has implications in future years. Most contracts do. Yeah. Okay. So I think that already motivates what y'all are doing really well because what you're describing is super complicated. Mm -hmm. And these general managers have for generations been making these decisions implicitly considering these things, but it's essentially impossible for any one person to keep all of these factors in mind. You're saying, when I decide whether or not to re-sign this player, Mm -hmm. I have to think about, it's not just this player, I'm making a decision about the whole roster, 53 guys or whatever. Oh, and also, I'm making decisions about next year's roster, Mm -hmm. and I've got to think about not only what he brings to the team, but what it means for our cap Mm -hmm. considerations. There's no way. This is the real, I think, the beauty of what Super Sports is doing. is like there's no way human beings can do that. Yeah. No, none. Yeah. I mean, y'all can't even do it yet. You've got exactly. all these great people, yeah. and you're still building it, and you'll be building it out for a long time. But that's how hard it is. Yeah, it's, it's a beast of a problem. And football is, from an analytical standpoint, a beast of a sport. There's so many variables that go into building a roster, and you, you hit the nail on the head, right? No human could fully explore the search space of all these rosters that are possible in a given year, let alone future years, right? So being able to create a digital system that can help augment decision-making is critical, but that alone takes time, and it's something we're working very hard on, and we found very challenging but also exciting. Given that, I mean, so much of, I think, what you're talking about is, is, is sort of taking into account the context of a particular team's resources as well as kind of availability of a position and stuff like that, is the kind of basic unit of what you're thinking about, like when you think about roster value, is it really kind of an individual player doesn't have a single roster value across teams it's sort of like every player team every player team kind of combination yeah. has a certain roster value to it yeah no it's it's a great point again this is we're looking at this as a comprehensive system so you hit the nail on the head here again it's with a player you're looking at okay what is the player's performance value uh, and you know going into that is is the evaluation of a player how important the position he's playing and how often he's on the field playing that position um, but then That's just a player's individual performance value. Combining all of that for all your players on your roster gets you to roster value. But that's an additive way of approaching it, which is it's useful, but it's also, um, I think uh, he was mentioning earlier about the interaction effects, right? And refining refining roster value to be able to allow it to account for differing play skill sets and differing interactions, thinking about someone like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. That's something we're definitely considering and wanting to build in, but currently it's more of that you know that additive approach where it's you're adding up all the performance values to get to your eventual roster value so we've been hearing a lot about scheme and the coaching staff and the way they think about playing the game and that being actually quite ephemeral the mm-hmm. coaches can leave and yeah how do you deal with that do you think a lot about the current team's configuration and what their plan is and how that might change when you do the evaluation 
Yeah, so we, we want to be able to try to customize the teams and the schemes that they build within their rosters. So, um, you know, currently we're working with two pilot teams, and uh, within the system we define positions based on what they tell us and the schemes they want to uh, implement on the field. Um, that, that discontinuity that you're talking about, that is a very interesting problem, right? Because you have certain teams that will have coaches, you know, shuffle in and out, and you're in the middle of trying to build a roster, and... And here comes a new coaching, coaching staff with a completely different scheme, right? So that, that flexibility and maneuverability is something we really want to be able to present within our, our system to be able to provide recommendations in real time, dynamically, based on those changes. I, I love it for two reasons. One, obviously, you're giving the team, the client, discretion, and you're honoring differences across teams. You're not saying there's one answer. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is you're, in some ways, skipping the hard part yeah. because the, the, the who's to say right now mm-hmm. the exact value to put on a particular player. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying we'll take whatever values you have, which mm-hmm. makes them happy but also allows you to then – use the parts that you can do right now yeah. to help them. I think it's, I really, I mean, I mean, I felt this way from the beginning. It was like, I think it's really interesting and, and exciting what you're doing. The other thing that's interesting and exciting and gets our attention is the hiring you guys have done. I mean, you go out and you poach one of our favorite people in the whole community who's sitting right here, Eric Eager from PFF. And then you grab a Paul Saban who's doing some of the best stuff I've ever seen in college football analytics. How have y'all decided, what's your hiring strategy been since the beginning? Like, how did y'all think about it? As one of the founders, how did you think about it? And how did you find these people? Yeah, so I think it's twofold. I think starting from the very beginning, uh, asking Thomas to come on as our CEO was critical because while we are, you know, uh, we're a software company trying to produce this, you know, this quantitative piece of software, but it's critical to us that we have someone with league knowledge and domain expertise to be able to come in and really direct it in the appropriate way and how we could smoothly integrate with NFL teams. Um, so that's the first thing. And then regarding all, you know, Paul, Eric, uh, and a lot of others, you know, this, as I said, is a beast of a problem. This is a very challenging problem, and we, uh, we've solved some of it, but we're not close <laughs> to solving all of it. So right. we really wanted to bring in people who have both analytics experience but also football experience to come in and really try to, to, to lead the ship on the analytics side. And I think it's also, though, looking at different perspectives outside of football analytics or outside of sports analytics altogether, whether that's uh, the defense, defense industry, finance, or other perspectives. For us, you know, it's a contest of ideas. So uh, it's not really, you know, who has the strongest idea, but who has the best idea. And we want to bring people in who are passionate about football and uh, who are passionate about analytics. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in the sports realm, but uh, having someone like an Eric or a Paul definitely helps with, with years of experience. Got it. All right, last question. You talk about the importance of being passionate about football. We know you're passionate about a particular team, <laughs> the Giants. And you know, I would say, despite their having a couple of Super Bowls in recent memory, they haven't exactly been on the cutting edge of your business, roster management, player analytics, player evaluation. Is this all just a long game to improve the Giants? Is that really what's going on here? That's the goal, right? No. Uh, look, I've yeah, I've been a diehard Giants fan since 2004. It would be a blessing, honestly, to be able to to work with with any NFL team. Uh, you know, the two. Uh, pilot teams we're working with right now. Uh, it's been a great relationship, and we're really enjoying the developmental project uh, process. Um, and yeah, hopefully down the line, who knows, being able to work with a team like the Giants would be a dream come true. Great. Well, listen, we wish you the best with it. It'll be fun to watch the progress over time. Um, thank you for making the time to be with us. No, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Jack Jones, co-founder of Sumer Sports, one of the real interesting developments in the sports analytics space in the last year. 
Okay, that has been the first half of a very special Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Four more interviews from the floor of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. We are now rolling into the second half of the show, this very special edition of Wharton Moneyball recorded on the floor of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. In Q3, we're going to move to world football. We're going to talk about soccer for the next two or three interviews. Second half of Q3, we're talking to Omar Chowdhury, Omar's chief intelligence officer for the 21st group. We have talked with Omar over the years. And in this conversation, we get a little more into just what's going on in the Premier League. Tell us about the Premier League. Help us make sense of the Premier League. Before we get to Omar, Sarah Rudd, co-founder and chief technology officer of SRC. We have heard of Sarah for years. We've never met her until this time. We were delighted to sit down and talk soccer analytics with Sarah Rudd. We're happy to welcome onto the show now for the first time, someone we have heard about and wanted to meet for a while now, Sarah Rudd. Sarah is co-founder and chief technology officer. We can hear about the negotiation of the titles of Source Football, a new venture with her partner, Ravi Ramanini, friend of the show. This is our first time to actually meet Sarah and to have her on the show. Sarah, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You guys um, are making, you guys being the world of soccer, the world of world football, are getting a bigger and bigger footprint at this conference over the years. I've been coming since almost the beginning, and it seems like it's grown. And I read, I read the papers. I referee some of the papers some years, and, man, there's some sophistication in soccer analytics. Um, how was the panel yesterday? You chaired the, sports, the soccer analytics panel yesterday. How did it go? Did, what was one of the interesting things people said at the panel? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, like, a pretty amazing experience because, you know, I got my start in this industry here at this conference probably about 13 years ago. Really? Um, So I just came as an MBA student looking to like find my way into the industry. Yeah. So I came when there wasn't even a soccer analytics panel. It was like a football and football panel. (laughs) Uh, So we got half a panel that year and no research papers. Amazing. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to kind of talk with the two speakers that were there um, get some career advice that was obviously very beneficial. Uh, and, you know, the whole time... Real quickly, what yes. was that career advice? Yeah, so the career advice was basically that there are a lot of people who want to work with data and football, even back then, um, when there weren't really any job openings. Um, and so what he said to me was, just show that what you can do. And so yep. that inspired me to start blogging and just get my hands on yep. any data that I could and just talk through my thought process about how would I analyze football if I was at a club and really focus on things from like the club perspective and what would be valuable, you know, for a club Mm -hmm. that's trying to make decisions on how to recruit players, how Mm -hmm. to analyze the game. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that was unbelievably valuable for me because that led to me entering the SatDNA research paper competition, which led to SatDNA eventually hiring me and then Arsenal eventually acquiring SatDNA. So Arsenal, that's landing pretty good in the world of soccer to end up like, you you know, a few years after you start, you're helping Arsenal's analytics program get off the ground. That's fantastic. Can you say a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, I mean, for me, I was a huge Arsenal fan, so it was like a a dream come true. Um, And, you know, prior to me accepting the job offer, they were quite coy about who their big client was. 
Uh, and so my former boss, Jason Rosenfeld, had like a big chuckle when he could finally reveal like, oh, you know, our, our secret Premier League client is Arsenal. And by the way, like we're in negotiations to be acquired by them. Uh, so so that, was, that was pretty amazing. And, you know, uh, getting to work with like a coaching staff of Arsene Wenger um, and all those guys was like a dream come true. And, you know, there's obviously frustrating parts where, you know, you wish you could do more or, you know, the wish the team had been more successful. But looking at it now and, and where the team is and kind of the department that we grew, it's just been it's been amazing. And to kind of circle back to the panel, you know, when we got started with Arsenal, we were only dealing with event data. Now we're talking about tracking data and a lot more sophisticated techniques of analyzing thing. And, you know, so one of the things I really liked about the panel yesterday was it was a good mix of experiences um, where someone like Omar Chaudhry looking at things from more of a macro level and talking about how, you know, even today we can still get a huge benefit from just simple data analysis, but on more of like a longitudinal analysis yeah, I, I mean, I guess, you know, that kind of leads... The question I sort of had when you were, when you were describing sort of like the, the, the change in the sport over time is, you know, you talked about sort of like, you know, the advice you got was kind of to demonstrate sort of your skills and, and, and passion through like kind of working with soccer analytics kind of on your own at the start of your career versus now. How how much, you know, if you had the, got that same advice, if you were starting out now what kind of I assume it would be very different in terms of the data that you'd have available and the types of things that you would choose to do kind of with, with that data can you kind of talk a little bit about how that's changed yeah from I mean, then so, until now yeah so I got to run into uh, an old friend Paul Nielsen uh, who's currently with Skill Corner at the time was with Prozone and he reminded me that way back in 2009 I was asking him for tracking data uh, and unfortunately he couldn't couldn't give it to me so I wasn't able to do anything with tracking data Sarah tracking data existed in 2009 yeah so tracking data has been around football for a really long time uh, I, I'm pretty sure it predates NBA uh, but the problem was that clubs couldn't really get access to the raw data and so we weren't really able to... Who was tracking it and why if the clubs couldn't get access? Yeah, so, so this company, Prozone, was tracking it. And they, they owned it. But for some reason that I'll never understand, would only give the aggregate physical metrics. And, you know, it might have been that they didn't think clubs could do anything with it. Um, and they probably would have been right at yeah, the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly complex data set. Um, you know, it takes a lot of computing power and storage to analyze, but then a lot of time to synthesize that down to an insight that, you know, a coaching staff could actually find useful and actionable. Um, but yeah, starting in 2014-15, the Premier League had like a league-wide tracking agreement. And so that's when things really changed. And, you know, departments like Arsenal, Liverpool were able to get big tracking data sets and, and do some really cool stuff with it. Um, you know, so what I tell kids now is there's tracking data floating out there. It's not going to be a full, you know, 380 game data set, but it's enough to kind of do a proof of concept. So, you know, don't just share your code, share your thought process and say, okay, this isn't big enough to get clear insights. But if I had 380 games or 760 games, this is what I would hope to do with it. And these are the insights I would like to explore. That's such solid advice. I mean, one, just to get stuff out there and do it. And I love this. You're taking it one level deeper and saying, 
talk about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And um, that's not obvious to people. One more detailed question on exactly this issue. How do, if people are going to go from just like basic data skills to working with tracking data, it's a whole different methodology. How does that, how does a person get started there? Like, do, what can they go jump into to get the basic nuts and bolts of how to work with those kinds of data? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's difficult. Fortunately, there's been a lot of really cool initiatives that popped up during the pandemic. Um, so there's a YouTube series called Friends of Tracking. And they have a lot of tutorials about how to build, you know, something like a pitch control model, which is pretty prevalent in football and like the basis of a lot of analysis. Um, and so they walk you through the steps of how to do that. They have some anonymized data that you can play around with. And so that's a really great first step. You know, my other advice is don't try to boil the ocean. Start with something that's like a very clearly defined question with an answer that you think you can get. So it might just be like, who's the fastest guy? And then you have to think about, well, what does fast mean? How can I identify fast? What are the different types of speed and quickness that I'm thinking about? So it's kind of a, a simple question, but there's a lot of aspects to it that you have to think about. Sarah, that's golden. Just fantastic. Narrow, concrete, answerable question, especially as you even get started. Specific, even the specific questions end up having a lot of sub-questions that you probably don't even anticipate at the yeah, beginning. absolutely. And so that's why I love getting kids out there with their hands on the data because they realize like, oh, actually, it's not as easy as I thought. Like, I got to go a lot deeper. Like, this isn't football manager. It's hard. You mentioned pitch control. And in our everlasting quest to better understand and to be reminded of things about soccer and legs that we've forgotten, can you give us a little bit of an overview and our listeners an overview on pitch control, what that means, why it's so helpful, and kind of is it understood now and fixed and it's just an input to everything else or are we still trying to push that ahead a little bit? Yeah, I would say it's it's kind of like the foundation to to answer other questions. It's not the answer itself. Um, so what pitch control is is you know football is all about space. You know you have this one hundred five by sixty eight meter pitch uh, and twenty two players on the field, but you know it's all about who controls what spaces and where and how valuable are they and can you get the ball from point A to point B? Um, you know, one team is trying to do that. The other team is trying to stop you from doing that. And the beauty of, of football and football analytics is there's always going to be space on the field. And so what managers and players are trying to do is control what space is available, where and when. And so pitch control is a model that takes into account player locations and their speed and assigns, you know, how much of that, you know, one by one pixel do you control? Like, are you really close to it and if the ball were to go there like you're very certain to get it or is it kind of like a 50-50 foot race between you and the nearest opponent to see who would get there and so it's you know you can see these kind of like cool maps where it's kind of like red and blue where there's zones where the defense is in control zones where their offense is in control and so it doesn't really answer any questions but you can start to ask better questions and say you know how susceptible am I to a counterattack? because of the spaces that I've left open. That presumably various parts of the pitch have different values, and so you're going you're gonna to integrate the control of the pitch with the value of the pitch. But one of the questions that jumps to mind is, the way you describe it, it could be agnostic of the player's ability. Is there some way to fold in? Some people presumably are able to 
I don't know. How does that work? How do you how do you factor in individual differences? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of different aspects to it in terms of like player ability. So there's physical ability. Certain players are faster at, at accelerating, faster top speeds, so they can get to places other players can't. Um, and then there's also the ability to get to the ball to more difficult areas. Um, and so, you know, there's various ways. Sometimes you want to factor those into the models. Other times it's too complex. Other times you want to just look at the residuals and say, well, this guy is performing above expectation. Therefore, he's great. So it really depends on the question that you want to answer. Got it. Sarah, we're going to have to let you go. Sadly, this is super helpful. I'd love to keep talking to you, but I do want to ask one question. In this great, you're, you're giving us the basics. You're giving us soccer 101. You're at the frontier. What's an example of a question you're interested in in your own work in analytics and soccer right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still one of the really basic questions, which is how can we predict uh, this player's performance going into a new new context? And by new context, I mean new team, new playing style, new coach, new league. Um, it's one of the most basic fundamental questions and one that we still don't really have great answers for. And it applies not just to soccer, but to baseball, football, basketball. Oh, and by the way, to lawyers, consultants. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is one of the best questions in performance evaluation generally. Fantastic. Sarah, thanks so much for making time for us. Wonderful to meet you finally and to get a chance to visit with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Sarah Rudd, co-founder and chief technology officer of SRC Football, Source Football. New venture they have out there working in the field of soccer analytics. We are at the Sports Analytics Conference, the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We're squatting in the concourse outside the VIP room. You'd think we were flagging people down as they walked in and out of the doors, but in fact, we scheduled some friends. and The real interview schedule. We've got a real professional interview schedule, and we are delighted to welcome onto the show for, I don't know, the third time, maybe fourth time, but it's been a few years. Omar Chowdhury. Omar is the Chief Intelligence Officer for 21st Group. 21st Group is a consultancy that started started within our lifetime. We've been doing this for nine years, and I think we were there in the beginning. We caught them early. And they've got a soccer operation. They've got a golf operation. They've consulted on the Ryder Cup to Lee Westwood and all those guys on the European side of things. They're in the middle of a lot of interesting things in European sport, and we're glad to have a chance to talk to Omar. Omar, good morning to you. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure for having me. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making time for us. Um, what has been your experience with the conference so far this year? Yeah, it's been great. I haven't been here since 2016, um, so it's been nice to come back, uh, see some familiar faces, engage with North American sports, which I just don't do on a daily basis at all. Um, so understanding what's going on in in US sport, and then see some familiar faces. So it's been uh, it's been fun despite uh, the weather. Despite the weather. Despite the weather. Come on. That's, that's big talk for Brent. Yeah, our, terrible, our terrible weather it's over here. freezing. Sorry you're away from London. London in February. Sorry to take that away from you, Omar. Omar, uh, old friends like Sarah Rudd mentioned you. We had Sarah on a conversation, mm. and she mentioned you, and she mentioned ProZone, which is, yeah, I yeah. think, where you got your start. You guys are doing a lot of work in world football, obviously. Um, can you can you kind of get us up to speed on where the Premier League is, like the competitive balance in the yeah. Premier League? Because it feels like it's a little more, it's a little different this year than it has been. And I think if you came to me and Shane and said, you know, tell me what's going on in the NBA. Is Golden State up or down? Or is the Celtics like, and we would have things to say about players and coaches and ownership groups. 
the Premier League from this distance, and we're super casual observers, you know, for years it was Man City, Man City, Man City. Liverpool is going to make a run. They're going to have a great season and still miss out by half a game mm-hmm. or whatever. They finally get through. But it's kind of those two teams is all we've heard about. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Arsenal is up this year. Maybe Man, Man United has been like a soap opera, and now they've got new managers. Like, give us the lay of the land. Oh, and by yeah. the way, these non-top six teams are like – nibbling at the edges yeah yeah so give us the lay of the land in the premier league i think first and foremost it's important to start with the premier league is obviously the most popular wealthiest successful league in in european football and world football and that is driven by the jeopardy in the league it's driven by the fact that historically it has more jeopardy than other leagues and yes there's been certain eras of dominance we talk about man city and so on um but actually if you go back over kind of 15 20 years it's in La Liga in, in Spain it's very much dominated by two in Germany dominated by Bayern Munich Italy a bit more disruption now but for 10 years Juventus um, France obviously dominated by, by PSG so the Premier League's always been able to celebrate its jeopardy more than others that's okay. growing the value of the league Okay. then if you look at the current situation the current standings in the league there has been more disruption particularly this season start at the bottom relegation which obviously foreign concept to, to US we listeners, love it but, we, we want more of it yeah but it's it's one of the big drivers of interest every game the cliff edge between being in the Premier League and being in the Championship the second division down is about 100 million in, in revenue It's and you know you talk about clubs that only earn about 150 million in, in revenue each year so it's an enormous drop so the jeopardy that comes with that and the fact that you've got enormous clubs like Leeds United West Ham um, Everton, Southampton, all these clubs being sucked into it like, is interesting for all fans, even if you're not, because you, everyone takes a bit of Schadenfreude in in kind of big teams not not doing well, and I think that's a big part of the kind of um, interest in the league. Um, uh, and there, look, long term, there is a positive correlation between how much you spend and how well you do in the league. Um, and, and generally, you've had five or six teams towards the top of the league. Uh, Man City is still up there, but teams go through peaks and troughs in the same way that they do in US sports and Liverpool at the moment um, are a team that's been dominant but it's going through through a trough and that's it's interesting because there's, there's disruption at the ownership level there there's there's things going on behind the scenes and, and changes in the kind of um, dynamics of the club there that are potentially affecting that Man United have finally managed after 10 years after Sir Alex Ferguson left finally got a coach who I think um, is a long-term coach, gives young players a chance, has a very clear way of playing. They're recruiting to that style, so it's a big change in that respect. You've obviously got Newcastle United with their new ownership, who have, again, appointed very well, also spent very well. Normally, you'd think big, you know, Middle Eastern ownership are going to spend a load of money. They haven't spent loads of money. They've spent money uh, smartly. So that's all kind of led to disruption in the league, and, um, and it's kind of made it a very fascinating season. I'm hoping Arsenal stay in there, though, because... You know, otherwise we're going to have Man City running away with it again. Yeah, it's always anybody but Man City. That's kind yeah. of the mantra. Well, real quickly, you mentioned Newcastle. So the, remind us which, which Middle Eastern group yeah. or country bought Newcastle? So it's uh, PIF, which is the um, Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. So okay. they very much kind of uh, yeah, represented with Saudi money. Okay. Newcastle is iconic in their uniforms, if nothing else. This yeah. is the superficiality of the American Observer. <laughs> but Newcastle has been great in periods in the past, but not mm. one of the top six. Is there some chance for a team like Newcastle, especially with that kind of financial backing, to compete? Could they make the Champions League top four? I Absolutely. Mean, I mean, they're right in the race for the top four. One of the biggest challenges football's having at the moment is how much should owners be allowed to invest in their teams? Because you've now got states investing in football and they can theoretically spend anything, right? You've got Middle Eastern states that have got endless pocket, endless um, depth of pockets. 
and so football's trying to limit how much you spend relative to your revenues but you can't grow revenues until you start winning so it's a chicken and egg situation so Newcastle, so Newcastle have found a way to spend smart if they can break the Champions League this year which they might be able to probably about one in three one in four chance of, of doing it then they get Champions League money which they can reinvest into the team and that gets them into a positive cycle so yeah very good chance for, for Newcastle to kind of grow and break into that top six permanently what are the efforts to encourage more parity and maybe kind of restrict sort of that top end spending look like? I mean, obviously, I, I assume nobody's considering some kind of hard salary cap the way we have in American football. You know, there's things in baseball where there's like a revenue kind of a tax, basically, on, on, on kind of higher spending teams. What, 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 what are kind of, what's the Premier League mentality towards how one might kind of develop a little bit more competitive balance yeah so the, the number one thing the Premier League does is it distributes television money more flatly than any other league in the world um, so the ratio between the top team and the, and the median team in the league is about 1 to 1.3 top to bottom about 1 to 1.7 in leagues like uh, the Netherlands top to medium is like 1 to 6 uh, in leagues like France and, and Germany is like 1 to 4 1 to 3 um, so that helps but the big challenge you've got is that you can distribute that central money kind of you can apportion it how you want but things like sponsorships and things like match day clubs can go out and earn that money themselves so if I'm Man United and I'm one of the biggest brands in the world like even outside of sport then you're going to have you're going to have loads of brands that want to be attached to you and going to pay good money to have their name on the side of the pitch on the front of the shirt and so on whereas if you're Wolverhampton Wanderers kind of a provincial town in the Midlands in England you're not going to attract that kind of money and that that's really where the inequality is coming from and it's very difficult to to regulate that because that's kind of a free unless you start to centralize sponsorship revenues and match day revenues which is really not especially in a way in which you know spending somehow is kind of tied to revenues which it sounds like the, the system is there yeah absolutely that's the case what about the role of analytics Mm. So we've got a modest spread in revenue share. We've got a big spread in sponsorship. That translates into a pretty big spread in talent. Where do you think we're seeing the impact of some of the organizations being sharper analytically than others, especially some of these non-top six organizations? So the two poster boys for analytics in the Premier League are Brighton and Brentford. And they have a lot in common in that their owners uh, made their money in betting. Uh, and they made their money in betting kind of 20, 25 years ago uh, when betting markets were less efficient and they were able to build models that are now very much a mainstay of of the way that we analyze teams and players. Uh, but they're able to use it to make money. And that it's impossible to, or it's very, very difficult to recreate that type of culture overnight at a football club. That way of thinking analytically about the game. And that's embedded in all their recruitment and analysis. And they are two teams that have bottom five budgets but are both in the top half Brighton might even crack Europe this year wow so have you seen those edges accumulate you talk about the, you talk about the, the time it takes to build up the culture mm-hmm. you're right you can't just come in ownership just can't come in and all of a sudden realize all the edges that mm-hmm. they could potentially eventually are you seeing Brighton and Brentford accumulate those over time and then are you seeing other organizations copying anything they learned from those guys yeah, so they, they, they've certainly built it up over time. I mean, Brentford were in the third division uh, probably eight years ago. And oh, jeez. Really? Yeah, they've really got, gone up. Brighton were in the third division not too, a bit longer ago, I think it was, oh and they've, okay. they've really shot up. What, what these organizations have, though, is they have a, a number of people who are looking at football to still bets and, 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 and make money from that. And that's, you know, the number of people in IP that you've built up over that period of time is, is very difficult to re- recreate. So 
what other clubs have tried to do is, is build their own departments but look at edges in different ways a club like Liverpool have done very well they've um, hired very smart people and tried to build a technology infrastructure but, it, but it's not easy to recreate some of those edges and the problem Brighton and Brentford have got is because they're smaller clubs they haven't got the ability to spend that money to really get them into the next right. tier of clubs right, right. Okay, we could, we could we could, and we should talk to you more, but we're going to have to let you go. One last question. Marsh, fired by Leeds. Yeah. Ryan O'Hanlon is my new favorite hero in soccer because he wrote such a great book. One of the heroes of his book is Marsh. Mm. Then he gets canned like three months after I read the book. Is that just the nature of the business because it's a soap opera and someone's head has to go? Is it bad management by yeah. Leeds? Did O'Hanlon have Marsh wrong? What's going on? Head coach hire is something we do a lot of, and it's very challenging. Predicting how players are going to perform at a new club is a lot easier. Like You can have a good degree of confidence about when plan A moves to club B, how they're going to perform. Coaches, if you just look historically, of the predictors of things that drive success at a new club, it's incredibly random. Like How they do it at one club doesn't necessarily drive another. And that's because of things, the softer things like culture and environment, and that's tough to recreate so I, don't, I certainly don't think Jesse Marsh is a, is a bad coach he's come through a very good schooling of the, the kind of Red Bull um, schooling of, of football but uh, yeah part of the soap opera is that churn of coaching in English soccer alright well good fun it's one of the things we have to kind of embrace and especially we, uh, around the World Cup it's like look national teams noisy just yes. enjoy the soap opera man. Exactly. sign up for the soap opera enjoy it Omar thanks for making time for us man always a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much Omar Chowdhury thank you for making time for us thank you all right, that is Q3. We still have Q4 in front of us. Two more interviews to wrap up the special episode of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome to Q4 of this special edition of Wharton Moneyball at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We're going to end the show with Robert Hess. Robert is a chess grandmaster. He's a chess coach and he's a commentator, probably the best known commentator in the world of chess covers many of the big matches. We talk competitive chess with Robert. Before that, we talked to Thomas Gronemark. Thomas is a throw in coach in soccer. He works for Liverpool and consults to many other organizations. Thomas was one of the real delights of the conference for us. Fascinating to hear him talk about his work as a throw-in coach. Welcoming now onto the show, Thomas Gronemark. Thomas is a throw-in coach, a throw-in coach, an increasingly popular specialization area of attention and focus in professional soccer. Thomas has helped create this space, actually. Thomas is uh, working his fifth season with Liverpool. You might have heard about those guys. He also consults to other football teams as well. Thomas, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to talk with you. We're on kind of a multi-year ongoing quest to understand soccer better. We are um, passionate, rabid about American baseball, American football. And every few years we get fired up about soccer. We get pulled into the World Cup. We get pulled into Champions League. We get pulled into the Euros. And we get pulled into the analytics of it. I've refereed some papers at this conference over the years. And I've seen stuff on throw-ins in particular. What can you tell us, especially for those who don't pay as much attention, what's different about the way teams think about throw-ins now from the way they've talked about throw-ins and thought about throw-ins or practice throw-ins or worried about throw-ins or not historically? You can say until a few years ago, uh, soccer was a really traditional sport. Like if you ask me way behind 
traditional American sports, but also other sports like, yeah, for example, I've been been on the Danish national bobsleigh team there, and we were way ahead of of soccer in in, in professional soccer in Denmark and, and and other countries when I started with my throwing coaching 20 years ago. So I think the the approach to to throwings in in soccer has been that. Oh, it was just a throw-in. It's something you just have to do, and let's see what happens. But the challenge with throw-ins in soccer is that there are normally 40 to 60 throw-ins in a match. You're using approximately 15 to 20 minutes of playing time on on uh, throw-in-related situations in soccer out of 90. So it's actually a big, big part. But one of the signs that it's been like underestimated is that if you see a soccer match and a team lose the ball after a throw-in situation, the commentators are not saying anything. But if you do the same... With, uh, with the ball uh, at your feet in the middle of the pitch, they'll say, wow, that was bad, and it happens <laughs> twice or, or, or three times, then it'll, yeah, they'll be, uh, you know, they'll say a lot, yeah, so, so there's a big uh, potential in, uh, in, uh, in soccer throw-ins. So you're saying here's this critical thing that happens all the time where possession is either kept or lost, and people are just not paying attention to it because it's, it's kind of a, it's kind, it's just not a, essentially not attended to. And you're saying that's in stark contrast to someone who might be dribbling the ball and loses possession. That's like a thing. And you're saying, what's the difference? In both cases, they're losing possession. And so we should pay more attention to the situations and the individuals and the plays that either help us keep possession after throw-in or we lose possession. Do I have that right? Yeah, you're totally right. And, and one thing is to keep a loose possession. Another thing is to create chances, score a goal after your own throw-ins. But just as important uh, is the, the opponent's throw-ins because you can take the, uh, the possession from them and either uh, create a chance and score a goal there. So, so there are so many situations not used well enough. But that, that's my speciality. So I'm glad you're helping us even on this super basic level because when we think of throw-ins to the unsophisticated soccer fan we don't know all of the strategy that's going on with the players or we're thinking you know very special situations like down around the goal a lot of throw-ins are just like middle of the field but you're saying even in those situations that's an opportunity for a play and if you're on defense it's an opportunity for a takeaway so you're so now that we have that right tell us give us an example of something you're coaching a team to do or have coached a team to do or, or a way that teams literally what they do concretely differently in those situations now yeah i'll say first of all there's been a tendency that that players are not moving at all uh, when when there's a throw in uh, and then it's really hard to create space and if there's been some movement it's only been individual space creation where a player just run back back and forth for for himself or herself with a cut or something like that you can create a little only a little bit of space but i work for example with team space creation war where two three four players out on the pitch are creating space together so it means that we have a higher quality of space so even when you have a throw in at your own penalty area you can you can keep possession but also sometimes switch the play or find some open space in the middle or diagonal or do big boxes up the line and so so you can you can actually go from your own penalty area and then 100 yards up the pitch and score a goal yes it's not happening every time but sometimes the possession can also just give you control of the play and i have like some some people are treating throw-ins like 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 a traditional set piece in soccer, where like corners and free kicks or 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 playbook in American football. But I'm treating like I learn the players the basics first with with basic team space creation, precision, throwing further, and other throw-in tools. Then the second thing is small-sided games where they're learning to 
do my tools effectively and understand them, work together, create space. And then the last thing is, is, is the three different zones. And on that way, the players can, yes, they can still do like set up plays, but I'm learning my players to read the game. So in theory, when we have a throw in, let's say in the middle of the pitch, then my teams have maybe 15 basic options, but these basic options can be made in thousands of ways because of different number of players, different angles, different timing and things like that. So I'm learning the players to read the game, see the opponent's defending pattern, and then take a decision. And yes, maybe it doesn't work every time. But for example, I took Liverpool from the season before I came. They were number 18 in the Premier League out of 23rd last with a possession on throw-ins under pressure where the players are marked with a possession on 45.4%. But in my first season, we 18-19, we improved to 68.4% and went from number 18 in the Premier League to number 1 in the Premier League. Also to number 2 in the whole Europe just after one of my other teams, uh, FC Midtjylland from Denmark. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think the throw, it, it makes, I mean, again, what, the way you're presenting this, it, it kind of, it, it, it gives me the sort of insight that, you know, throw-ins, basically part of why um, they are kind of unique is that it's sort of a, you know, it's a very continuous game, but that it is a pause moment where you can kind of get strategic about how the player, you know, the, it's not a re, it's not like an in-play kind of situation where the players kind of have to react to what's going on. There can be kind of more of a proactive strategy to whatever you're doing the throw-in. And maybe that's where it becomes kind of analogous to a set piece, but obviously not maybe, uh, you know, not by definition close to the goal, goal or anything like that. So how much of it is sort of like evaluating which players are particularly good in kind of throw-in situations versus, you know, an actual sort of like multiplayer strategy for where you want the ball to go with a throw-in. You can say it's, it's actually everything. I take everything in consideration. And one of the things I take in consideration is the team's formation, the, the team's playing style. It can be, of course, very different from team to team. I also really look at a thing I call the opponent's defending patterns. It means that how is the uh, opponents generally marking but also marking in, in this exact throwing or how is the opponent uh, defending patterns changing while we are moving and I'm learning the players to do that so that's like from a team perspective then on the other hand I have a thing called individual throwing superpowers it just means that different players have different skills so it means that some players are really fast you can get it behind the defense some players have a good first touch it could be really, really good to make return pass with them or give them in the middle we also have players who are strong who can protect big boxes it's better to use them than weak players. Then we have space creators too, for example, who can create space not only for themselves, but especially for uh, the teammates. So so I'm both taking individual skills uh, in consideration team skills. And then, of course, we have to throw itself. We want the thrower to throw as far as possible, so he and she can yeah, sometimes in some teams use as a set-piece weapon, but also increase the throwing area so you can throw to more teammates. But this player also has to throw precise, not only to the feet, into an area where a player runs or into a pocket, but it could also it's also really important that a throw-in taker is a good decision maker and taker. So that's important. And then in the end, uh, a lot of teams they say, "Whoa, it's only the the fullbacks who take the throw-ins." But in my teams, it's the new player who takes the throw-ins fast if there's a good opportunity. If there's not, they wait, have patience, give the ball to the fullback. So yes, on one hand, it's complex, but it can actually also be made really simple if you understand the, the, my philosophy. My God, that's so much fun. There's so many considerations. I'm going to start paying a little more attention to throw-ins. Like, sincerely, that's just absolutely fascinating. And it's fun to think about these throw-in superpowers, that different players have strengths that you can do, exploit, deploy differently on the pitch. Thomas, you're one of the 
connections between what you're doing and analytics is that there's a there's an innovation here and you have to influence decision makers to actually adopt your suggestions. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that is going? First, at just the macro level, so across the top teams in Europe, how many are paying this level of attention to throw-ins now? How has that changed over the last five or six years? And then on the blocking and tackling of innovation, what has been your experience of having to convert managers to this philosophy, players to this philosophy? Yes, I'll, I'll say first of all, um, until like I, I got my international breakthrough at Liverpool FC five years ago, no one were really like looking at what I call the fast and clever throw-ins. That's just the throw-ins all around the pitch. I had success even already from 2004 with the long throw-ins. And people said, oh, we can score on a long throw-in. But what I call the fast and clever throw-ins, all the other ones... There wasn't much attention to that. But then Jürgen Klopp called me on the phone, the manager from Liverpool FC. We got big success also winning Champions League and Premier League. And then suddenly all other managers and coaches said, wow, now it's interesting. So, of course, it had helped me a lot. Of course, I've been to around 30 different professional soccer clubs the last five seasons all around the world. So I'm a freelancer. Um, but, but, but all the other clubs I, I haven't coached, they've also been taking inspiration from me. But, but I just think one of the big mistakes many other soccer clubs are doing is that they are not ta- they're taking their, a little bit of approach like, like, again, a playbook in American football. They say, okay, we set it up a little bit like a corner kick or free kick. But for me, yes, you can do specific things once in a while. I also do that. But for me, it's much more worthful to learn the players, to see the game, read the space and everything, and then take their decision because that's much harder to mark. So I see a throw in a little bit in between a traditional set piece corner free kick and then open play because in a throw in, yeah, you can wait, wait perhaps 10, 15 seconds before you take your, your decision. Sometimes you throw after one second. Yes, I know it. But, but there are so many different open spaces and you have to choose what is best because one thing is possession who wants a possession where you play back to your goalie no if you can instead take a dangerous uh, possession instead and sometimes it's even okay to lose possession because if we can throw it down in a space where you have a low risk high reward then I don't care if if the opponents get a goal kick if they win the duel yes of course I prefer that we score yes but 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 sometimes it's wow we did well it just didn't work and that's fantastic so that's my approach too no, and it's fascinating to hear about throwing specifically as this kind of mixture, as you're saying, of, of, of sort of like there's advantage. Like if, if, if you have somebody that has very good reactive decision making and can kind of see a very quick sort of opening that you do, you know, there's, there's an advantage of kind of like being very reactive and quick with the throwing, but then recognizing situations where that's not the case and then slowing down and that presents the opportunity to kind of be a little bit more kind of strategic and involve multiple players in the play. I, are, are there other kind of situations like that in, 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 in soccer that you think could be more taken advantage of? Like maybe, you know, sort of spot fouls and stuff like that. Is there a similar kind of, you know, uh, like, we, you know, opportunity for the future to kind of take some of these skills and, and development from throw-ins and adapt it to another situation? Yeah, yeah, of course. And first of all, I'll say a lot. Uh, teams actually get a lot of effect by my coaching, not only in throw-ins, but, but for example, I work a lot with the fast throw-ins, and it's also, also ten, always tend to give faster reactions on, on, on free kicks, faster reactions on corner kicks, faster reactions on organizing the defense, and so, of course, on throw-ins that I work specifically with. 
but also so the managers head coaches are saying to me the players are saying now we are more switched on and it's really good no matter what you do to be switched on if it's in sports in life in general of course sometimes we have to relax but if we want to win that soccer game that's that's really important so so in the soccer itself it 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 transfers to many other areas and then i'll say of course i have in my pocket i have some things in soccer for example i've been working like secretly a lot with the goalkeepers throw out and some some how can you say unexpected uh, movements by the players outside but i haven't I haven't told anyone yet. Yes, I've been working with the big leagues like Premier League and and Ligue 1 in France and and the Bundesliga too with the goalkeepers. But I'm not branding myself with that. It's only like in secret with the clubs. So I'll maybe like like bring that out and and that'll like change the soccer world like my throwing philosophy has done. Uh, but I'll wait a little bit. Why you you shouldn't play all your cards at once. So um. wise, deeply wise, Thomas. We thoroughly enjoy hearing from you. Thank you for making time for us today. Good luck to you and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thomas Gronemark, throw-in coach, world football, working with Liverpool now and a number of other organizations and individuals, it sounds like. Thomas Gronemark. We are here at the 17th annual Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We're taking in some of the panels. We're talking to old friends in the hallways. We're meeting some new folks, which is delightful. And we're picking up some interviews. Did some on the first day of the conference, doing some on the second day of the conference. Delighted now to welcome onto the show for the very first time, Robert Hess. Robert can say chess grandmaster. How about having chess grandmaster in your title? Coach and commentator. We're going to talk chess for the next 10 or 15 minutes with Robert. Robert, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, Tell us about chess at the sloan conference people come in expecting some baseball basketball football maybe some crazy edgy things like i don't know tennis and then they they do have pickleball they do have pickleball today uh and we've got chess and chess is it seems to be kind of a theme over the years actually so why is that you can blame daryl morey for it daryl's loved chess ever since uh he was a kid He's a huge chess fan and lover and so it's the fifth year in a row that i've been here doing uh, a chess event at sloan that's really uh, fantastic. And you were you were saying that you guys have like a little kind of like matchup or whatever uh, uh, later today. Is that right? Yeah. So it's gonna be like a team match. So Daryl and I will team up, and then another professional chess player will team up with Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings, and we're gonna duke it out over the board. Is it a, a quicker match than usual? Is it one of the timed match speed chess? Yeah, speed chess because everyone loves speed chess. Well, it's you know th- this seems to be the way the world's working. Cricket is playing faster matches these days, right? Um, baseball has just changed its rules to speed things up. How much difference do you think this, the, the proliferation of cheap speed chess has made in the popularity of chess? Oh, it's actually helped just the game boom because people have shorter attention spans these days. They just don't have as much time. They're doing so many different things. But speed chess is also exciting because if we're being realistic, the average fan will not be able to understand everything that's going on, but they want to see quick-paced action, and they get that in speed chess. Yeah, and I, I was kind of wondering, too, like the fact that it's a, a faster a game, does that mean that there's a little bit more kind of variation in outcome? Like if you had two people playing and it was kind of maybe a little bit of a relative mismatch... 
would the lesser like just kind of like having the faster pace of it introduce more kind of randomness into the outcome which I, I think you know like from a from a kind of competitive design you know that's going to draw more people in too if it's sort of like if the, if the better player is kind of always guaranteed a victory that makes I think things a little bit less compelling so I don't know how much the how much extra random the speed chess is no you're spot on I think that's what scares people about chess is that they feel that uh, in the chess world you're playing someone's better than you you're going to lose all the time but at the highest levels, we see many more decisive games in speed chess, whereas in top-level classical games of chess, those are games that could go up to seven hours, we see many more draws. People love decisive results, they don't like ties, so speed chess guarantees them that. What percentage of speed chess games at the high levels are decisive? Well, I don't have that stat off the top of my head, but most of them. Okay. And how long does a speed chess match last, typically? The most common uh, speed chess games you see on like chess.com are three minutes per side. So you just three minutes each, total six minutes, you get through a game in a blistering pace. Oh, good Lord. Wow, <laughs> that is fast. Is that how y'all are going to do it today? No, we're not going to be that fast today because it's a team thing. You know, we're just trying to have fun. Uh, but some of the chess gets as fast as 15 seconds per player. That's okay. at that point barely chess, just mouse speed. But people do play at those kind of quick intervals. Are you, is it mostly going to be you? trying to figure out what Daryl wants to do so you can defer to him? Is that how it's going to go for your side? Yeah, usually it's, uh, well, the, the, one of the players says a piece, and the other uh, player has to figure out what move to make. So if you say pawn, and there are eight pawns, you've got to figure out which one to go. So I'm actually not sure if Daryl will be saying the pieces or making the moves, but I know he's nervous, but also super competitive and wants to win. <laughs> that sounds like fun. That's great. Well, the other innovation, well, the two other innovations, I'm thinking one's not an innovation. One, the, the big innovation is... Uh, the is availability of computers and games online and all of that, right? That has to have made a big difference. And, and I think I've seen numbers on how many games are played on, is it chess.com? Yep. Um, it's just, it's in the millions daily, oh, right? Oh, I think crossed a b- uh, billion for the last month. Oh my, hold on, billion in a month? Yes. Oh my God, that's absolutely yeah. incredible. And then how, any sense of how that has changed over time? Oh, a ton. Chess is just growing and growing and growing. And part of the reason why is that when you play chess in person or when you play online, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to say, oh, basketball games are canceled. We can't go. How are you going to find a basketball game? It's mm-hmm. different in a video game versus in, in real life, whereas chess is the exact same board, mm-hmm. 64 squares, 32 pieces, and you go at it. And then it's, my understanding is that you can, if you're playing a computer, playing a simulation, you can dial up the level of competitiveness. Like you tell them how difficult you want them to other side to play and that's what you get yes and computers are way better than humans are at chess so you know we have no chance we just bow down to our uh, silicon friends and uh-huh. that's been the case for a long time but also helps people understand because you get the truth from the position in a way in sports when you watch you're rooting you're cheering but you don't know the optimal play as a fan you do in chess okay now you say optimal play but there is such a thing as style right or there's a amount of risk taking it's almost like in sports where we know there are different strategies and one may be privileged but there may be occasions to play the other is that that's the way it is in chess too yes? yeah because we're imperfect right we don't have the answers when you're playing a game mm-hmm. you're not hooked up to the engine you don't know what the best move is so i may be a risk taker and my opponent may be someone who's just more solid plays a slow maneuvering game and that's a clash of styles and that plays out in so many chess events no, that's really interesting to kind of hear because, yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of things that's, I guess, maybe a little bit frustrating or, or limiting about evaluation of players in basketball or football is you're constantly, you, you can evaluate, the, you know, the good outcome of a 
of a, of a play, but you don't know how kind of far from optimal or how far from design that particular outcome was. Whereas, I, I, you know, I don't know to the extent that you kind of can create like a player evaluate a chess player evaluation that's almost like deviation from optimal or something like that. I mean, that's what we would love to do in any sport, but chess maybe we can kind of, as you sort of said, we can get a better sense of what optimal actually is. You also have more controlled data in chess than pretty much any other. I love sports, huge sports fan. I'm all into the advanced analytics, but in chess, you have all of that information at your fingertips. You can see how much time a person spent in a given situation. You can see the, the mistakes that they make and in the types of positions they make them in. You can see in any given opening. Think about it. In chess, there are so many different moves, but I can say in this opening, that person scores worse than in that other one. So let's try to get them into that type of position. So that is how top-level players work. They prepare in advance, and they try to use all of those metrics to their advantage. Fantastic. I want to hear more about your life coaching these top-level players. But before that, one last question about what has contributed to the acceleration of the sport, the popularity of the sport. How do you insiders feel about the Queen's Gambit? Love it. Love it. Queen's Gambit was exceptional. Why 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 do you feel that way? Because we don't know. From the outside, it's like, oh, my God, this is such a great show. And And it was wildly popular. And it had to have contributed to the popularity of the sport. But as an insider, what made you like it versus often, you know, if they show a popular version of our lives. We're, like, we're picking nits. We're complaining about things. They don't quite get it right. How did you feel? Yeah, well, it did sell out all the chess boards, so that was great for the game. Uh, but I think it was pretty accurate. I mean, some of the depictions, of course, were glamorized or changed in ways. Uh, that's always a stylistic choice. But the chess itself was very accurate. The way that the actors portrayed the games and the intensity, I think, was really spot on. And I just loved everything about it, from the fashion choices to the cinematography. Uh, but I think the chess was really accurate. Okay. All right, David. So tell us about your weekly, daily life now. As a, are you still competing? And to what, how, what does your coaching life look like? And you've referred to these analytics tools that are now available. What role do they play in the way you work with other players? So most of my days are spent commentating on chess events. So uh, all the biggest events, you'll see me covering them uh, on Twitch, on YouTube. The numbers have gone through the roof. Sometimes we get up to 150,000 concurrent viewers and uh, millions and millions of eyeballs. So I'm commenting the biggest events, trying to bring both the entertainment and mostly the education because that's the best thing about chess. You can learn every single time you watch. Mm -hmm. And as it goes to coaching, uh, I was just coached the U.S. national teams, the best players in the U.S. who are some of the best players in the world. And often, unlike sports, we're coaching during the game. Chess is entirely beforehand. You're working on puzzles and tactics, making sure that they're as sharp as possible. But mainly for specific opponents, I have an entire database of their games. And we're sifting through that. And at the top level, they play so many different things. So it's like, what are they going to play on this day against me? And why are they going to do it? Let's try to pinpoint that so our preparation is as accurate as possible. Okay, final question one that's relevant across sports we see with analytics and and tools and evidence an ability to optimize sports in ways that haven't happened before or they happen at quicker pace and people sometimes complain because that optimization leads to homogenization and all the baseball teams play the same way all they've all played deploy the same style or they rob the fun of the game this is some of the stuff we're it's just optimization at a very quick rate 
is there anything like that going on in chess now that we can see kind of what's optimal in every situation? It definitely is because certain opening theory is seen to be, you know, the theme of the day. You have to play that, otherwise you're worse and your opponents know it. Uh, but that said, there are so many distinct possibilities in a game of chess. Humans can't memorize them all, and there are variations. There are variants of chess, like Fisher Random Chess, where the back row of pieces start on different squares, the same from, you know, on each side. But that means that you can't just prepare something because you don't know when you sit down the board what you're going to get. And one more thing I want to say is that players like Hikaru Nakamura and Fabian Karwan who are here, unlike in any other sport, while they're playing, you can hear their thoughts and understand what's going through their minds in a way that you can't in most sports. Like, how much would we love to hear what Steph Curry is thinking when he takes a uh, three-pointer from nearly half court? But in chess, you can do that. That's what's born. That's one of the big reasons why chess is becoming increasingly popular. Because they're micing them up and they're talking out loud. They're talking as they're thinking out loud? Yeah, you can go on, you know, on the Twitch and see chess players playing high-level games while talking about their moves. So you see the process happening, and you should trust the process, of course. But in this case, we see the best players and hear their thoughts, and people love that. What other game or sport do you have insights into the top players as they do their job? Terrific. Well, thank you for educating us. Thank you. You're a very effective evangelist Mm -hmm. for chess. Delighted to have a chance to spend some time with you. Have fun with the rest of the conference. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Robert Hess, chess grandmaster coach and commentator. Terrific catching up with him a little bit here. Wrapping up our time here at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We have been around in some form for most of 48 hours now. Downtown Boston. This one at the Heinz Convention Center. They bounce between two convention centers over here. Fun couple of days. Saw some cool sessions. Probably more importantly, saw a bunch of folks. A lot of Vista in in the concourse around here. Some in the bars and restaurants around here. Caught up with some old friends. Met some new folks. Talked with a number of people. We got a few interviews in the can. We'll use them in various ways over the next weeks and months. But it's really always a pleasure to sit down with some people in person. We do so much of it remote. It feels better and different to sit down in person. For my colleagues over here, Shane Jensen's been in for the whole thing. Adi Weiner's away the second day, but was in for the first day. For the crew, my goodness gracious, Michelle Young, Jamie Powers, absolutely vital to what we've done. Could not happen without them. And more fun because they're around for the run. Matty Dats, Deion Simpkins holding it down, making the whole thing work. Many thanks to you guys, too. And thank you for listening. Come back and join us next time.